So, good afternoon, or good evening for those of you that are not on the West Coast. Before we do the Dhamma talk, I want to talk a little bit about Donna. So I want to start with a poem. I found it so that I would get in the right energy to talk about this. It's just a couple of minutes, not going to be a long, drawn-out speech about it. But this poem is called The Quiet Listeners from Laura Fawley. Laura says, go into the forest and tell your stories to trees. They are wise, standing in their folds of silence among white crystal rocks and dying limbs. And they have time. Time for the swaying of leaves, the floating down of dust. They have time for gathering and holding the earth about their feet. Do this. It is something I have learned. How they will bend down to you softly. They will bend down to you and listen. This is what I think, Donna. This is what I think generosity, this Donna talk is about. So for this whole retreat, as teachers, we come into this with a sense of being willing to bend our ear to hear whatever you want to share. It's just this bending of the ear. It's a slight inclination to get in close and hear whatever it is that you want to share. Whatever is happening over the course of this week, no judgment on any of it. Just this willingness to listen the way trees would just listen to you. And if you've never tried that, it is a beautiful experience to go whisper to a tree and know they're listening. And so likewise, there's a sense of a Donna talk is really about our opportunity to talk to you and you incline your ears to hear what we are saying. It's this, this uh, willingness to lean in close and hear what a teacher says in exchange. And we were talking about who's going to be the one to say this talk as teachers. And, you know, it's awkward. This Donna talk in Western Vipassana practice. If we had robes on and we had a bowl, a begging bowl, you would not, there'd be no tension. All of us would line up and say, okay, my turn. It'd be no, no difficulty. But here in the West, we are not monastics as teachers. Our bowl and robes or the things we wear doesn't come before us. So instead, we have to talk and say words that represent the same thing. Just like monastics, we've pretty much given our lives to the Dhamma, 
and to this willingness to live out of generosity. So no sinner has to pay us. You know, it doesn't matter whether the teacher is this great teacher like Philip Moffat or the rest of us. It doesn't matter. We're all on the same, same level here. Because we all have dedicated our lives to this understanding of generosity. And what that means in this t- tradition is that as teachers, we have to come before you and lean in close and tell you about, uh, ask for your generosity in supporting us, supporting all our financial needs and taking care of us in that way and supporting us in being able to continue to share the Dhamma even after this retreat. And that's what a Dhamma talk really is. It's just like a practice meeting, except we're the ones telling you um, what's going on for us instead of you telling us what's going on for you. So there's a system. There should be two buttons. It should be the, there should be the Donna buttons on the homepage now. Uh, and if you have any questions about how to go about the process of it, you can just e- t- uh, chat to Carlita or email uh, Fall Insight at Spirit Rock, and we can answer those questions. But really what this is about, what my leaning in is about, is to encourage you to be generous and abundant. And I'm saying that specifically at a time when abundance is a little on the edge. It's a little going against the stream here. But the reason why I'm encouraging you to be abundant and to give generously is because of that very fact that we can get trapped in feeling like the world is not abundant, but it is. And we can, I I grew up poor, so I know the damaging effects of scarcity, of thinking there will not be enough. But over my life, even as I have decided to live as a, uh, just out of generosity of other people, there is abundance. And so you're not giving abundance of your thoughts about what you should be giving abundance. You're giving abundance from the felt sense of whatever moves you. And that moving of the heart is abundant enough for you. It is abundant enough for Donna. So on behalf of all the teachers, all four of us, We are most appreciative of your gifts and most grateful at the level that you have been sharing with us, how grateful you are for these teachings and the way the retreat has been held. So thank you so much. Now, Matthew is gonna share a little treat. Thanks, uh, thanks, Tori. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's almost, uh, I, I have this impulse to always ask every time I start talking, is this sound okay? But you all look like you're hearing me. Okay. So, so um, I was the, uh, I was in charge, I was tasked with uh, creating the spreadsheet that kept track of all the talks and the paramis and who's doing the instructional sit and the affinity sits and all, you know, keeping track of all of it. And, um, and so I organized this grid and um, I did, uh, you know, I did a great job, except that I lopped off one parami. I made it nine. And uh, <laughs> were it not for Tuary, who uh, made the observation, you know, uh, uh, you know, you left off wisdom, uh, you would have got the newly formulated, not six, not 10, the nine precepts, but Tuary caught it. And so here we are, wisdom, wisdom. And um we were, before we realized that, which was during the retreat, we were going to do something where um, Twery and I would kind of um, like interview each other about something, a topic to be determined with the idea that, that sometimes the Dharma manifests um, in dialogue even more than in one person speaking. And I've I've always uh, felt like, um, yeah, you know, one teacher can only shine a light on one dimension of the path. And it's like you need more voices, more Dharma hearts to actually get a holistic sense of just how majestic and beautiful the Dhamma is. And so we're, we're going to kind of like have some kind of dialogue or interview, interview each other a little bit um, about wisdom, about wisdom. So to, uh, to, I'll just, uh, how are you doing there, Twary? I'm okay. <laughs> I'm a little nervous of you, but that's okay. I think I could. What do you mean nervous of me? <laughs> You know, they know what I mean. You can get a little in there. So. Oh. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, um, I should clarify, we haven't prepared this. This is right. part of it. It's because we are actually just going to talk to each other yeah. without having prepared any specific thing. Right. I did bring a quote. I brought a few quotes too. Okay. This is Toni Morrison. Um, in all of our education, whether it's in institutions or not, in homes or streets or wherever, whether it's scholarly or whether it's experiment, experiential, there is a kind of progression we move from data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom. And separating one from the other, being able to distinguish among them and between them, that is knowing, uh, 
that is knowing the limitations and the danger of exercising one without the others mm -hmm. while respecting each category of intelligence, this is generally what serious education is all about. And if we agree that purposeful progression exists, then you'll see that it's easy, it's seductive to assume that data is really knowledge or information is indeed wisdom or that knowledge can exist without data and how easy, how effortlessly one can parade and disguise itself as another and how quickly we can forget that wisdom without knowledge, wisdom without any data is just a hunch. So um, in a way we've been, you know, a retreat is, is about collecting data. Yeah, to use Morrison's language, we're collecting data. Every time we turn inwards, we're collecting data and, um, and we're building it into something, into something like a way of living, right? Um, but what is wisdom? What is, what is wisdom on the Buddhist path? What is the parami of wisdom? Um, that's the, the point of investigation for us here. So, uh, yeah, I'll put that, that question to you, Twery. Like, what, uh, what is, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Hmm. That's a good quote to start because that really is the way I think of wisdom. This, uh, I think wisdom, probably the best way I could think of it is it comes in threes. It's not, so, so if I back up a little bit, I have come to see that the way my mind, and I'm, pretty much assuming everybody's mind, it's pretty closed loop. It pretty, it pretty much only spins around the same understanding over and over and over and over and over. And everything that fits in that understanding comes in easily and just fits in part of the circle and it just keeps going. But when something does not fit in my current understanding, there's a lot of struggle with it. So the Dhamma doesn't fit in that basic understanding. It doesn't fit in our closed loop circle. It's outside, it's against the stream, outside the norm. It doesn't fit. So wisdom is how do we get that understanding that doesn't fit in our basic understanding? How does it become a part of us? And I think wisdom is how we go about doing it. So it comes in this, this kind of willingness to listen, to hear it, this willingness to even take in the possibility that there could be something against the stream, there could be something. And then we practice and we meditate and, We've talked a lot this week about balancing 
How do we balance what we hear? How do we feel into some of these paramis? How do we feel it and understand it? And many of you have given beautiful explanations of ways you're beginning to feel these paramis more alive. And then it's sort of this realization. Oh, oh, this is what it is. Not because someone told me, but because I know this is what it is to me. This is what it is. And that wisdom is what I think of that system of taking in Dhamma, being willing to get up close and hear it, and then practicing with something we're not really sure of, and then this coming to an understanding for ourselves what it is. That, that process is what I think wisdom is. Mm-hmm. What about you? Matthew, I'll just throw it right back at you. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you think wisdom is. Um, yeah, I love that around, uh, yeah, that, that the, the, the Dhamma has to like uh, penetrate through something that's insulated and yeah, that closed kind of system. It, it is, it is like, yeah, it's counterintuitive. There's that, that I'm thinking of, of that, um, uh, I forget the exact language, but it's it's like um, the 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 dhamma is is it's hard to hear for those who love their place. I think is the is one translation for those who love their their place, their standing, you know, and um, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. There's a lot churning in in my mind. Um, you know, I mean, when I was thinking about it, um, I, I didn't even, I kind of don't even know where to start because it's a little like, I, I don't give talks on mindfulness and I don't give talks on wisdom because it's like, it's everywhere, you know, like I can't do a talk on it, kind of, right? You know what I mean? I don't know if you had that sense, like what is wisdom? And it was like just uh, graveyard silence in my brain. Like I was like ready to Google wisdom, you know, and uh, <laughs> okay. Full disclosure did Google wisdom. So it's just striated through the whole path, you know, and um, um, yeah, it's like, uh, in a way, we we have we have like a philosophy of of happiness. You know, we we have in some implicit way asked the question like, how should I live? What is happiness? And in a way, we're we're living our answer to that question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And wisdom is like you're saying; it's like examining and refining, like what what is this philosophy I've been living with? Because the default human philosophy of happiness doesn't really pan out, you know? And um, uh, even if one is very fortunate, it's still, it doesn't, it doesn't fully acknowledge uh, the nature of, of human existence. And so like you're saying, yeah, there's some movement against the stream um, Mm -hmm. It's for me. It's um, it's about um, 
yeah, we become in a sense like connoisseurs of suffering, you know, because in a way suffering is our only problem. You know, it's like, you don't have to create the joy. It's like, no, you got to, you've got to look at the nature of suffering and if suffering starts to dissolve more and more profoundly, you don't have to like engineer happiness, you know, to fill its place, just like all the goodness, the Brahma Viharas are all there in a way. And so we like really learn a lot about suffering. We learn about what we want, you know, like what, what can actually make us happy. Um, you know, like for real, like we don't talk about that so much, but what do you actually want? That That's not a na- normal Dharma question, but mm-hmm. we actually have to ask that and, and answer it. And it's like, it's not the want of craving or impulsivity or that kind of thing. It's like the, it's like, oh yeah, I actually get to attune to these like deeper layers of wanting. And, and it's, it's almost like we learn what what desires um, can actually be satisfied versus the craving, like craving, which can never be satisfied. It's always endless. You know, it's like, whereas there are desires, like if you're hungry, if you're really hungry and you eat, that desire is satiated. Now the craving for pleasure or whatever, that, that never finishes you know the heart is never that hole is never filled so yeah um yeah um maybe just a couple more things and then i'll explore it together so um uh i think of wisdom as knowing the limits of our equanimity too you know like uh it's a little like where we want to fight our battles with our conditioning and you don't want to declare battle against all unskillful conditioning. There are certain things, certain habit energies where it's just like, all right, I'm going to just, at least for now, just let that be like, okay, I realize that makes my happiness a little precarious, you know, but it's like, I'm not, going to direct my attention to uprooting that kind of, you know, it's like, all right, I just respect the limits of my equanimity and don't, you know, just in a tender kind of way. Um, It's intuitive, you know, it's about ourselves, about others, about sensing the inner life of others more fully. It's kind of improvisational, uh, you know, it's like that Zen story, what is enlightenment? An appropriate response, you know, is the, the Roshi's answer. And it does feel like that. There's no like algorithm for this. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm wise. So I just do this. Da, da, da. And it's like, no, no. It's like so many causes and conditions. And then we manifest in some way. And uh, so we make mistakes. It's a learning. It's like uh, Miles Davis said, if you're not making a mistake, it's a mistake. You know, you're not making a mistake. It's a mistake. And that's how this feels to me. Uh, Yeah, you want to jump in? I just, uh, I think what you're saying is really touching something here because when I think of all the self-help kinds of things I've done over the years, all the 
things that I've done to try to make my life or make me better, it always leaned into some kind of happiness, like leaned into how was this going to be better than it already is, leaning into this getting better. Mm-hmm. And I do not think it is a mistake that the Buddha's wisdom comes out of suffering. Mm-hmm. Because when I actually think about where I've gained the most amount of clarity and inner strength and resilience does not come out of the things that made my life better. It comes out of this ability to be with some difficulty, to somehow not let the difficulty control my experience, my response. And I, and I find my trueness out of um, just the experience itself. Mm-hmm. I, I saved this quote here from Ajahn Chah that I really like. It says, um, I think this is points to wisdom. It says there are two kinds of suffering. Some of you may have heard this. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, that suffering that leads to the end of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Hmm. So there's something about in wisdom that's acquainted with, tied to, intimate with suffering Hmm. and our ability or willingness to be with that suffering, to let it be, and not think that the only solution is the end of the suffering. Mm -hmm. That somehow, if we can turn our understanding of what suffering is, we can see that it's in the suffering that our ability to see more clearly arises. Mm -hmm. And so it's letting especially given that, you know, as humans, we're going to suffer. I mean, if a virus that we can't even see can Mm -hmm. scare the living daylights out of us, Mm -hmm. then surely we are not the toughest, (laughs) we're not the toughest Mm -hmm. act in the whole thing. So that, that realization of how fragile we actually are is enough to help us see Suffering is inherent in this human existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. So, so um, yeah, we, we, you know, you, me, other teachers, like we talk a lot about um, about suffering, about dukkha, about mm-hmm. the fragility. Yeah, like a, a strand of proteins can undo an entire civilization. You know, and <laughs> Uh, we talk a lot about it, and sometimes, sometimes we, we, uh, I don't know. People sometimes people when they first they 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 when they don't know me and they kind of hear me talking, 
and maybe they're not so acquainted with the Dharma, they're like, wow, Matthew's like really kind of depressed and uh, he should get some help. <laughs> like, I care for him. You know, I just hope he's all right. And, you know, there he is just pounding on the first noble truth drum just endlessly, you know. So I, I, I talk about that a lot and talk about fragility and vulnerability a lot. And yet in my life, I feel like... Um, my heart is very full. Like my life does not need to get any better. And I bet it's the same for you. And, and it is, you know, yeah. And so it's like, so, so, but you're, we're like preoccupied or we point, we're pointing to the fragility, but you, you're very happy and you're like very solid and st- and steady, you know, yeah. steady heart. And so how does that fit together? Um, I think it fits because this is what I think Buddha saw. It's, I, I just believe that when, when I think about the Buddha, I think about a regular guy who lost his mom. So I know he had trouble with the fact that he lost his mom the way I would have trouble if I lost my mom at birth or, you know, right after I was born. And to be raised in a family where they're already setting the rules for how you should be and you got to be a king and this is the way I want you to be and all of this kind of pushing you in that direction and you're being called into some other direction, but you got money and here you are, you've walked away from everything. You've walked away from your wife, you've walked away from the baby, you've walked away from money, you've walked away from everything. Your friends have left you in that moment when you're sitting there with no teacher trying to figure out, is this really the right thing? Maybe I have second thoughts about all of that. For him to be able to sit in that space and stay with this inner desire to understand suffering and get to the other side of it that to me tells me that there is something more to suffering than uh, misery. There's something in suffering that we can miss unless we're willing to be with it. Mm -hmm. So the joy that I feel all the time comes from all of these things that I have sat with and have seen my way to the other side of it. I I was sharing with people in my group, you know, um, I've spent years in anxiety, just years of it, trying to get rid of it, trying to secretly ask the teacher, how do I get rid of anxiety without saying the exact same question that all my sangha has heard me say every time a teacher comes? I try to change the question up a little bit, but really what I'm asking is, how do I get rid of anxiety? And no teacher ever really gave me any answer. They talk all around the techniques of this and the that. But, you know, I got to sit with anxiety. And it would never go until I came to this kind of moment. I just really, it was a poem that Rodney read one year. Rodney Smith, my teacher, he read about a guy who had been in, I think it was the Iraq war and had half of his face 
uh, destroyed. And so he would look in the mirror at his face every day and look for the other guy that he used to be. And then one day he came to this resolve that the person in the mirror was who he was and that that was the person he was going to love. And I begin to get this understanding. What if this anxiety isn't going away? What if this is what I'm going to sit with? Am I going to give up the practice? What what does that mean? And this willingness to sit with that anxiety began this, this years and years and years of inner strength of seeing suffering, uh, my mental suffering dissolve if I was willing to stay with the difficulty and not try to find the solution that was going to make it better. And instead, I was going to understand it, get intimate with it, care about it. This natural realization of the end of suffering that we cannot see unless we're willing to get still with suffering is so joyous on the back end of it. But it's a, it's a trick because we won't see that joy until we're willing to sit with difficulty. Not sit with it until it goes, but sit with it like a friend that doesn't have to leave. We're good. You can stay if you want to stay. And something about befriending suffering creates this ability to see a level of joy that comes at the other side of it, on the other shore of it. And I think that joy is because I didn't have to do anything to get to that joy. It's not based on conditions. It's not based on somehow I got the sit right. Somehow the breath was strong enough or the noise was quiet enough or loud enough, depending on what you need. It, It didn't depend on any of that. It just depended on me not needing the moment to be any different than the way it was. And then I could see something that I would have never known except for that. Hmm. You know, I, I, I think what I'm pointing to here, Matthew, is a level of maturity that comes in practice. And I'm, you know, I think I, I listen to you and you do have this depth of, of understanding what suffering. You have a depth of, of um, I don't want to, maybe understanding is not the word. Acquaintance, it seems like, with suffering. And so how would a practitioner begin to move towards a level of maturation around suffering? How do we mature our understanding or our acquaintance or our relationship with suffering such that we actually can get to the other side of it, get to the other shore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks. So, um, yeah, I, I love love what you said. Um, 
that you know in some ways it's it's almost like like mindfulness and equanimity is uh it's never plan a you know it's it's like it's not not even plan b or c it's like plan z and then at some point you know when you're sort of <laughs> like up and we're oh like oh okay God. i'm gonna do the mindfulness yeah <laughs> yeah for real life it's like you know like actually if we watch our minds and what you know even in a retreat when we know mindfulness is supposed to be plan a it's kind of like i don't you know and and like what would it be as you were suggesting like like equanimity like true a true willingness is if if my life does not get one jot better than this if this never moves even an inch if this chronic pain of this heartache of this whatever it may be like does not get any better could my heart be totally at ease and the you gotta like that's no joke that's something that you have to test out to see uh that that they're the you know that we we not underestimate the capacity of our own heart and that we actually develop some confidence that yes it is so it actually um all of that can be there and yet the burden on the heart can be lifted by the kind of process and surrender that you're pointing to but um yeah, you know, the the habits of the mind of just sort of gaming out, uh, gaming out dukkha sort of, and just uh, just finding our way through the labyrinth, you know, that like, they, that runs really deeply. And um, yeah, so um, there was something you said about about like sensing that almost like the underbelly of suffering, like there's something else in there. There's something to be redeemed, you know? It's like, yeah, we're, we're uprooting suffering in a certain way, but it's almost like you've got to develop a certain faith that the heart can redeem suffering, that it's actually compost, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's language, yeah. you know? And that is like really against the stream that is like there is you know because when it arises it's like all alarm bells go off and there's just a sense of like there is no way that this moment is supposed to be like this you know and and so there is something around you know for me so much of the path has been um developing um yeah, developing a kind of the it's like an the acquired taste of the wholesome unpleasant, you know, like there's pleasant and unpleasant, and then you can think of like the two by two matrix. So pleasant and unpleasant, and then wholesome and unwholesome, and that one corner, the wholesome unpleasant. We don't put it on the flyers, but like, welcome to that quadrant, you know, that, that little zone. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, you know, it, at least in, you know, for a decade, like I was just like ab abiding, you know, in that quadrant and uh, um, yeah. And you do start to get a, uh, 
a sense of the redemptive power, like that, mm -hmm. that something is being softened in the heart, that something, some kind of like the muscle memory of, of, um, of wisdom is being strengthened. And, and it's the place where like wisdom and love totally converge, you know, yeah. cause it's like, there's wisdom being developed about the nature of suffering and happiness. And at the same time, the heart is just being like, like just needed like dough, you know, and our whole being is, is becoming softer and more, more humble. You know, it's like the more we, yeah, just the more you learn, the more humble you become. And there's that process of just like needing the heart and just becoming, you know, as we deepen, as the wisdom deepens, we feel more and more ordinary, you know, and, um, and, and then we come to live in a certain like ambiance of, yeah, of intuitive wisdom and, and, and love. And, and it's, uh, yeah. yeah um. You know, I'm thinking of something here that I'm, you know, just listening to this back and forth, I'm getting this sense that the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, we talk about these noble truths as they are, you know, like these pillars or these principles or the dun 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 about life, you know, this is it. And and as as practitioners, this is what we believe in. We talk about it like dogma. But really, as I'm listening to us, what's ringing true to me is I never understood why the third noble truth came before the fourth noble truth. Like, why do we say there is suffering and then there's a cause and then there is a uh, cessation of suffering and then there is the path that leads to the cessation of suffering? Why don't we say there's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering and then there is suffering? I mean, and then there is the cessation. Why do mm -hmm. we do mm -hmm. three before two? But mm -hmm. as I'm listening to you, I'm beginning to understand taking what Don said about this blamelessness and this idea that there's a redemption quality in suffering, mm -hmm. that if we paid less attention to our suffering and more attention to walking the path, that that redemptive quality, that blamelessness actually comes out of the path. It's the end. You know, the sort of the, the releasing is these little moments of getting a little relief here and there and a sit here and there and things are happening. But the true ultimate awakening, the true liberation is actually the fourth noble truth walking this path instead of trying to fix our suffering, walking the path instead of trying to make life right. Because it's, it's not to say that anything can happen. It could be all messed up and it's all wrong and I'm just going to let it be. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that letting the, 
difficulty of life be difficult, even if we have to respond in ways that, uh, you know, are hard because it's difficult. Hmm. There are things we, we have to do as a citizenship that's difficult, but we have to do it. There are things that we have to do as friends or there are things we have to do as parents or family members. There are things we have to do that are difficult to respond appropriately to situations where there could be harm. But not push against the fact that it's difficult. And instead, mm-hmm. our response is moving out of that fourth noble truth, that fourth ennobling truth. We're just going to move out of the path, move out of the wisdom of the path, and move out of those, that eightfold path. And I can see that when you move out of the eightfold path, that is this ultimate liberation, which mm. is quite different. You know, I gave this example. I know we got to stop, Matthew, but mm-hmm. okay, I gave this example one time. I was telling uh, some students of mine, I was saying, I was trying to help them see this like tension is not just one thing. It comes in layers and some tension we can deal with and some tension we can't. So you can change it to suffering. So the first layer of suffering, you could think about it, is just the suffering that the Buddha was pointing to is there's just suffering in being human. It's just what we were talking about. It's just there. And then there's a second layer of suffering that's more like our impulsive reactivity. It's so habitual that oftentimes we can't stop that. It happens even before we even know or want it to happen. And this is the layer, I think, where we cause a lot of harm, a lot of harm. A lot of it's unintentional, but it's so habitual that it still has a very deep impacts on other beings. Hmm. And then there's this third layer. And that third layer is the minds, the thinking minds, grumbling about reality resistance to reality which kind of prompts that second layer of of suffering and so to me where our practice is is in that third layer that third layer of the thinking mind that disagrees with reality as if it's speaking truth and the example i gave to show what this means is if you imagine you're standing in front of a, a, a still pond that's glassy, like if you've ever been to IMS and you walk around that loop and you see that pond on a still day, it's like, it's like glass and you're looking at it so beautiful. You toss this pebble into that pond and all of a sudden there's all these ripples. Those ripples is, to me, that first level of suffering. It is the impact of pebbles hitting water, and it's always going to cause ripples. And there's nothing to be done about it. Mm. It's just the nature of life. We're going to have ripples, and it's going to disrupt our glassy pond. But then we impulsively 
get down and try to smooth out the ripples, get it back to where it was, get it all smooth. And that is impulsive. It's just a scene of the ripples and then wanting to smooth it out so we can get it back to where it was. And the third layer is all of the frustration and anger and complaining that we're having because we cannot get it back. We can't smooth it out. We don't like what's happening. To me, practice is about learning to steady that grumbling of that third sort of level of suffering. And if we steady that grumbling, we can see our impulsive behavior and see it in such a way that we can begin to cut it off before we reach down there and start smoothing it out. Mm -hmm. And then we can let the ripples just happen in life as they happen, as they will, until they begin to smooth back out and we have our steel pond again. Mm -hmm. But if we're not really willing to deal with the mental chatter, the mental complaining, the mental grumbling about the nature of what's happening in front of us. I don't think we're gonna see the habit patterns that cause so much harm. And I don't think we can learn to tolerate the basic ripples of life that are gonna happen. So this is what I think wisdom is helping us see, that the real issue is our own thinking, our own resistance to reality. We work on that, and then I think the everything flows from there. Mm. You know? Well, it's like, um, yeah, with, with that that image of of the 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 ripples. It's like if you try to intervene to like smooth them out, you can't help but create more ripples, right? And so it's That's like. Right. But then restraining yourself from doing that is not always a purely passive kind of thing. There's a lot of strength and a lot of wise action in that, in, in not creating more ripples. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I don't know. We, what do you think? We, well, we, we, I think it's 5.06 civic <laughs> time. Twitter. Oh, I know. Okay. And, and I know you've got a a poem or something I to bring it, bring it, poem. you know, you do, you got to bring it home. Twary. I, I got a poem, you know, um, I, 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 you, you never would know that I hated poetry when I was in school. I hated it, but I don't know. The Dhamma does something to change our understanding. So this poem is from William Stafford and it's called a ritual to read to each other. And this is what William says. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. Little G God. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets 
the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible eras of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade holding each elephant's tail, if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider least the parade of our mutual lives get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake. And a breaking line or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Yeah. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you so much, Matthew. <laughs> it was so nice to do that with you. It's very nice. My, my pleasure. That was, yeah, a delight for me too. So uh, we are going to take a little dinner break, eating break, I guess you could say, and then we'll see everybody for their, whoever wants to come for that last sip at uh, 7 o'clock. Right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.